we heard from Amos last week. Amos was not a professional prophet. He was just like an ordinary worker, shepherding the flocks, tending the orchards near Bethlehem and Judah, probably part of King Uzziah's big economic rebuilding program. And the Lord tapped him on the shoulder, sent him up into Israel to warn them that the Lord is about to show up and deal with all the injustice and abuse. Amos urges them to turn to the Lord rather than to their idols like now. We don't know what happens to Amos. Meanwhile, in Judah, King Uzziah has become powerful. And with that, he has become prideful. He decides the rules don't apply to him. And he begins to act as if he is a priest and begins doing things in the temple that the Lord has reserved only for the priests. You may remember that the temple itself is primarily a two-room structure which with a bunch of other small rooms and courtyards surrounding it. This is, um, these are some pictures I took in, in Israel at the Israel Museum a few years ago when I was there. So this is like a scale model of what the temple and its courtyard looked like. Different people are allowed into the different courtyards and rooms, but only the priests are allowed inside the holy place itself, which is the building part there. Every day, the priests enter the first room, which is called the holy place, and they replenish the table of bread, the oil and the candlesticks, and the incense that always burns before the door of the holy of holies. The holy of holies itself is only entered once a year and only by the high priest. But one day, King Uzziah shows up with a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense. He's like literally trying to get into the holy place. The high priest and 80 other courageous priests confront the king and tell him he must leave the sanctuary for his incense will not be honored by God. Well, King Uzziah has a temper on him, especially when he's thwarted. And he starts screaming at the priests. But while he's raging at them inside the holy place, in front of the incense altar, leprosy breaks out on his forehead. When the priests see that, they rush him out of the temple. While that drama is happening in Judah, we need to go see what's happening in Israel. You know, kings are coming and going at an alarming rate there. Jeroboam II finally dies after reigning 41 years, and his son, Zechariah, becomes king of Israel. He's just as wicked as his father. And after six months, he's assassinated by a man named Shalom, who attacks Zechariah right in front of the people of Israel. Back in 2 Kings 10.30, the Lord had promised King Jehu, that if he followed the Lord, his sons would reign over Israel for four generations. Well, Jehu wasn't all that great about following the Lord, but the Lord has kept his promise anyway. And Zechariah is the fourth generation or the fifth, depending on whether you count Jehu. Well, Shalom, who assassinated Zechariah, doesn't last even as long as Zechariah did. 
After a few weeks, he's assassinated by a man named Menachem. And all this happens while Uzziah is still king in Judah. Zechariah, Shalom, and Menahem are all evil kings, continuing to lead the people in idol worship. None of them have paid any attention at all to the prophets God has been sending. So God does what God always does. He sends an even stubborner prophet with even more urgent messages. The Lord sends Isaiah. Isaiah has an extremely long ministry, beginning near the end of the reign of King Uzziah and extending at least 50 years or so. He lives in Jerusalem, and his prophecies are primarily directed to Judah and Jerusalem. As you know, a big-time famous prophet like this will have a following of prophets around him, what we call a school of prophets, and this is certainly the case for Isaiah. One way we know that is because the book of Isaiah is actually a jumbled mess of a whole lot of other books, passages, and stories. If you sit down and try to read it straight through, thinking it's a story with a timeline, you will be completely lost. It jumps all over the place in time. So in order to help us sort this out, I'll need to give you some spoilers about how the story ends. You're going to need a map to make it through Isaiah. My timeline looks like a scrambled mess too, but bear with me here. I'll add it to your study guide, so don't worry about trying to write it all down. Let's read it beginning on the left-hand side. Right now, Uzziah is king in Judah and Menahem is king in Israel, and we're probably somewhere near the end of their reigns, around 740 BCE. So we're only about 20 years or so away from the fall of Israel. Israel is conquered by Assyria in 722 BCE. King Hosea will be the last king of Israel. The Assyrian model of occupation is to swap the local people out and send other people to live in the conquered land. And this is exactly what will happen to the Israelites. They will be deported and scattered all throughout the Assyrian Empire, which, as you know, is huge. And they never return. All those tribes in the north are lost forever. All that's left is Judah and perhaps some remnants of Benjamin and Simeon in the southern kingdom. We'll have several more kings in Judah in the ensuing 135 years or so. And during that time, Assyria itself will fall to the Babylonians, a powerful new empire. Judah will fall to the Babylonians too. That will happen in 586 BCE. The difference is that when the Babylonians conquer someone, they deport the entire community as a group to Babylon, leaving a few poor people behind to work the land under the supervision of Babylonian officials. They don't scatter the conquered people all over the world like the Assyrians did. And that makes a huge difference. The people from Judah and Jerusalem who will end up getting deported to Babylon make homes there and get jobs, many of them in government positions. 
And that's how the Lord will save a small remnant. That's how Israel, which in that time, after both kingdoms fall, it begins to be called Israel, um, referring to it in its ancient sense as all of God's chosen people, Judah, Jerusalem, Israel. It's, it's no longer a divided kingdom. There's just It's just called Israel, God's people. That's how they end up surviving. And about 50 years later, in 539 BCE, the Babylonians are eventually conquered by a coalition of Medes and Persians led by King Cyrus the Great. Now, obviously, Isaiah does not live for this entire 200-year time span. But the prophecies in the book of Isaiah speak specifically to details from each of these periods and beyond. King Cyrus is actually named in some of the prophecies, for example. So from the messiness of the compilation itself, as well as the particular details of the various occupations of Israel and Judah and details from the exiles in Babylon, it is pretty obvious that the book of Isaiah was cobbled together by scribes or schools of prophets or some other similar group, many of whom lived through these cataclysms or were even born afterwards in exile. We know that this collection we call the book of Isaiah was considered a scripture very early on because a scroll of the entire book was one of the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in the 1940s in Qumran. There are something like 24 panels stitched together to make this scroll. It's huge. I'm only able to show you a small portion of it here. The Qumran community was contemporary with Jesus. And Jesus himself read from a copy of Isaiah when he began his ministry in Galilee. So if the events described in the book of Isaiah include stuff from 539 BCE and later, and it was scripture by the time Jesus showed up in year zero, you can see how quickly it was canonized as scripture in the hearts of the people. I give you this background to help you overcome what you might have been taught as a child the teaching that each of these books was written by whosoever's name is on it and was essentially dictated to them word for word by the Holy Spirit of God. These books are clearly God-inspired writing, especially the book of Isaiah, which includes some of the most powerful and memorable poetry in all of scripture. And certainly some of the content probably was written by the actual man Isaiah, but definitely not all of it. Much of it was probably written by those in his school of prophets who knew him personally, and much of it was written by prophets in exile who never knew him but were clearly familiar with his writings. Their messages are quite consistent with his, just as inspired as his, and were grouped with his as the book of Isaiah began to take shape during the Babylonian exile. Knowing this gives us the freedom to sort the various messages to where they belong in our storyline. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters in it. Scholars divide it into two or three main parts that they attribute to different authors, 
And of course, the scholars don't agree with each other, but still, there is a solid scholarly consensus on what I'm showing you, even though they may argue over some of the details. Um, they group uh, chapters 1 through 39 into what is called First Isaiah. They group the rest of the chapters into Second Isaiah, sometimes called Deutero-Isaiah. Deutero just means second. And other scholars will take um, that, that those chapters 40 through 66 and say, no, those are really two separate books themselves, that chapters 40 through 55 are Deutero-Isaiah or second Isaiah, and there is a third Isaiah, which is the last chapters 56 through 66. I don't care how they sort it, I really don't, because I'm not going to organize it like that. We're not doing Isaiah as a separate book. Instead, I'm going to pull out the prophecies as I think they would have been given to the kings and the people, and I'll pepper them into the appropriate places in the story as we go along. There's obviously no way I'm going to do justice to a 66-chapter book in an overview course like this, but I will definitely incorporate every significant theme in its place so that when you read Isaiah for yourself, you can appreciate the scope and beauty of the prophecies without being confused by the order they're presented in. Remember how time is perceived by this culture? Remember how it's like perceived as a sort of folded in pretzel where the past and the future meet in the present and vice versa? This is never more obvious than in the poetry of the prophets. In fact, when reading Isaiah, it's helpful to think of the present time as layers in which past, present, and future mingle freely as if they have porous boundaries. Isaiah moves between the three layers seamlessly. So we have to use context and clues in the language itself to help us understand where he is in the bigger picture. We can see how this works in the first four chapters of Isaiah. So let's use those as our test case. We're still in the time of arrogant, leprous King Uzziah in Judah. And here is Isaiah's message. The Lord says, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth. I reared children, but they rebelled against me. I have disciplined you to the point of injury. Why do you persist in rebellion? Woe to this sinful nation, a brood of evildoers given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Stop bringing meaningless offerings to me. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. When you pray, I hide my eyes from you. I am not listening, for your hands are full of blood. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Then, even though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Well, this is a really famous line. We hear it in hymns all the time. But I want you to notice its actual context here in scripture. It is not talking about Jesus on the cross. 
that is not in view here. This is the simple, pure heart of the Lord God of Israel for his people. This has always been God's offer to us. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, and then your sins will not matter. I'm I'm not saying there was no need for Jesus to come. I do believe Jesus is the son of God. It's either that or he lied to us, and I don't think Jesus was a liar. I'm just trying to help you notice some really significant things about God's heart way before Jesus' crucifixion, things you may not have been aware of. Isaiah continues, if you're willing and listen, your Bible may say obey here, but the Hebrew word for obey is the exact same word as listen. If you are willing and listen, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. Then I will give you good leaders. And you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Okay, so here's one of those time warps. Isaiah obviously starts out talking about being in the time of Uzziah and how Judah and Jerusalem Jerusalem have been like rebellious children. He gives the message about what the Lord's about to do. And it's going to be like being smelted in a refiner's fire to burn away all the the dross, the, the, the impurities. That's all present time. But all that part about good rulers and being called the city of righteousness, the faithful city, none of that has happened yet, even up to our modern times. So it sounds like Isaiah is morphing over to the future right in the middle of this chapter. And sure enough, the very next verse at the start of chapter two has a key marker phrase in it, in the last days. That is another phrase, just like, quote, the day of the Lord, end quote. The last days are not the actual day of the Lord, which seems to be a single cataclysmic event itself. But instead, this phrase in the last days is used in scripture to describe both the days leading up to the day of the Lord and the days and years following the day of the Lord. So this particular passage happens to be talking about the time following the day of the Lord. You can't tell that yourselves yet. I know it because I've read ahead in the story. So you're going to have to trust me on this for a moment. So you'll get there. In the last days, in the days after the day of the Lord, the mountain the Lord's temple is on will be the highest of all mountains. All the people and nations will stream to it saying, let's go to the temple of the God of Jacob so he will teach us his ways so we may walk in his paths. Laws will come from Zion. The Lord himself will settle all our disputes. We will be our weapons of war into farm implements. Nations will not go to war. We won't even train for war anymore. Then 
around verse six of chapter two, Isaiah begins to wobble in time again with the present blending again with the future. This time he's seeing the current state of the people. Your people are full of superstition. They practice divination like the Philistines do. They're rolling in riches. They bow down to idols they themselves made. Now, this talks about the Philistines, so I'm pretty sure it's referring to Isaiah's present time. But then Isaiah kind of wobbles back into the future again. Hide, everyone, for the day of the Lord, the Lord has a day in store for all who exalt themselves. In that day, the Lord alone will be exalted and the idols will totally disappear. Notice the day of the Lord language here. This is the day we've heard about from other prophets, the day the Lord of hosts shows up to set things right, a day that earth and heaven are shaken. So with all this wobbling, it's actually hard to tell in chapter three whether Isaiah is talking about the future or the present. And here's why. I'll put this timeline in your study guide, too, so don't worry about copying it down. Let's start on the left. As we just saw. During Isaiah's time, God's people are proud and arrogant, exalting themselves and turning their back on Yahweh. The Lord will use the Assyrians to purge Israel and the Babylonians to purge Judah. To the people of Israel and Judah, this is going to feel a whole lot like the darkness and terror and violence that is associated with the end time day of the Lord. The main difference in language is that in the end time day of the Lord, earth and heaven themselves will be shaken. Mountains will fall down. The Lord of hosts himself is going to show up. The end time day of the Lord will be far, far bigger than just Assyrians or Babylonians. But here in Isaiah's time, the people of Judah will be taken as exiles to Babylon. Eventually, however, a remnant of folks are going to be allowed to return from Babylon to Jerusalem, but they'll be dirt poor. They never become a powerful nation during this time. And around the time the Hebrew Bible ends and we get to the part in between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, the Romans will come to power in a big way. Israel will come to be known as Palestine. And that's when Jesus shows up for the first time. You know the history of the world after that. And now we're right back to being a world of proud, rich people defying the Lord and trampling the poor, withholding justice. Same song, second verse. And that's why the lead up to the end time day of the Lord sounds so much like the situation of Isaiah's time. It's because the situation now is pretty much exactly the same, but on a bigger scale. What I haven't told you yet, because we haven't gotten to these prophecies yet, is that in the end times day of the Lord, on that day, Jesus will come back for the second time. He comes leading the armies of the Lord. Just as Joel prophesied back in class 51, in this end time day of the Lord, the Lord will send his voice, his word at the head of his armies. 
We'll learn a lot more about this, especially when we get to Revelation. An important note here. I am presenting the Bible to you in this class as a story in exactly the way it is written. To the extent humanly possible, I am not making judgments about how literally we should take all this. People, good, faithful people, scholars, preachers, teachers are all over the map on how literally we should or should not take these prophecies. You get to consider this for yourselves. I'm simply telling you the story as it is told to us in scripture. And the story says that after Jesus comes the second time, he actually reigns here on earth for a thousand years. It will be amazing. There's more after that thousand years is up, but we don't need to go into that for our purposes today. I'm pulling back the curtain to show you all this now to help you understand why it's sometimes hard to tell which time period and which day Isaiah is talking about. The situation he's currently in and the coming consequences, or the situation we're currently in and the coming day of the Lord are very similar. I usually look for clues in the words of the passage itself. If it talks about Philistines as it does in here in verse 6 of chapter 2, then I can be pretty sure this part of the prophecy is about Isaiah's time. But it shifts quickly and can shift back and forth like pretzel time. For example, in ver verse 21 of this same chapter, Isaiah talks about the Lord rising to shake the earth. So that, you know, that's end time stuff. So you, you have to stay on your toes and pay close attention when you're reading prophecy. But in the end, you know, it doesn't really matter all that much if you mix them up, because honestly, the two situations are very, very similar. We just do the best we can as we read this stuff. We'll use all the clues from this timeline to help us keep our bearings as best we can as we go along. So then in chapter three, Isaiah picks up a new thing. Tell the righteous, all will be well for them, but tell the wicked, it's payback time. The Lord will call the elders and the leaders into court, the ones who have been wicked, and ask them, what do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? The Lord says, the women of Zion are haughty, strutting along, flirting, dressed to kill. In that day, the Lord will literally snatch them bald. He will take away all their jewelry and designer clothes, all their perfume and cosmetics. Instead, they will wear sackcloth. They will be branded and they will be led by a rope. So this Prisoner language here reflects the practices of war during Isaiah's time, but the message would certainly apply to our time as well, right? Then in chapter four, there is a famous passage. There's lots of these in Isaiah. This is just one example. In that day, the branch of the Lord, which could be Israel, although there are other possibilities as we see later, um, certainly Jews see it as Israel. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Those who are left alive in Zion will be called holy. The Lord will wash away 
the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Over all of Mount Zion and over all the people gathered there, the Lord will create a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing flame of fire by night. Over everything, the glory, the Shekinah glory of the Lord's very presence will be a canopy. It will give shade from the heat and shelter from the storm. Now that is obviously an end-time prophecy, one that happens after the great day of the Lord, after Jesus comes the second time. And it has such strong roots in how the Lord was present to his people when he brought them out from their suffering in Egypt as a pillar of cloud by day and a column of fire by night. Note that the first part about how everyone left alive, the the remnant who survived the day of the Lord, will be called holy. Absolutely all haughtiness and pride and self-exaltation will be wiped away from the face of the earth. In our breakout groups, we'll look a little closer at what the Lord might mean when he says he will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. These are huge concepts, big ideas. The scope is as vast as the timeline. But in these first four chapters of Isaiah, you've got a good overview of some of the big themes that are repeated throughout the book. We'll draw in other parts as they enter into our storyline, but this gives you the core message in a nutshell. So when you go into your groups, be sure to skip over the introductory paragraphs in your study guide, which were for, you know, the folks who like to do this in advance. In your groups, go straight to the questions. That was interesting. (laughs) We didn't get far. So talk to me. (laughs) I was in a room with the guys. Oh, boy. We were were on fire. (laughs) Yeah, we were on fire. (laughs) Early had some great ideas. We kind of tied everything all together. All all of those questions kind of all accumulated together. And my idea or thinking or whatever is that all of this reference to fire is the same fire. And that that fire actually is the Shekinah glory of God. Mm. And that, um, like, which is simply the presence of God, the actual physical presence of God. But to have his glory there, and then that glory is what is being used to judge, compare, refine, whatever. Um, And it's like the refiner's fire. Um, if you have a gold refinery and you have that fire to put the gold in and the gold will come out more pure, but if you throw wood in there, it's going to consume it. Right. Which was that first, which was that first question, you know, the, the question, um, out of first Corinthians three, um, which, which was all about, 
you know, what happens, what happens, it, it basically talked about the wood and the gold and the everything in between being your works that you build on the foundation of who you are, you know, of, 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 of the indwelling spirit that you were given at birth. It's, you know, I, I really believe truly that we are all born connected to God and, and whatever name you call this, that we simply live our lives on top of that, you know, and that seems to be the imagery that, that the Corinthians verse is using. So what happens when, when, you know, you build like, it's like what you're saying, surely that if, if, if what you built in your life, the things that you did and the direction that you went and everything was gold, it's still going to be gold. It's going to be pure gold, even right. Dwelling. It wasn't so much the works themselves as the motivation for mm. the works. Mm-hmm. Because two people could do the same work, but one's doing it for his own glory and the other's doing it for the glory of God. Gotcha. Motivation is different. So it all goes back to what's in your heart. Exactly. Which we seem to see throughout these scriptures, no matter whether it's a story or a prophet or what, right? It's it's like a persistent theme. Um, And we're going to see it some more. So when in that second set of verses, which was from John, um, and it was Jesus talking, all of that should have been in red. (laughs) You know, those were red letters. Um, In the in the second part, Jesus is talking at the Last Supper, and he knows that he's about to die. And what does he say he's going to leave his disciples with when he leaves? The helper. The, the spirit of truth and um, spirit of all truth. those other um, all those other words that read the advocate yes the whole and the Holy Spirit and you can find some of those words put together in John 1426 but definitely and it's you know this whole thing that Shirley was talking about the Shekinah glory of God we're talking about the spirit of God being present to us in some way that is quite real and tangible. Jesus says, you can touch and feel me here in my body now. I'm about to die, but the Holy Spirit will be with you. And what did he say that the Holy Spirit would bring to us? Discernment. Truth. Yeah, whatever God is speaking, that spirit will bring to us that spirit will give us whatever jesus has god jesus says don't worry you know that i'm not here to calm the storm you've got it this this spirit's bringing that to you and this spirit will declare the things to come so it's like what we're doing here in in this study that it doesn't take long to begin to understand the themes. And like Woody said, that what is important is the direction the heart is turned and the rest of it <laughs> follows after that, right? So then we get to the, you know, uh, question three. And, and I didn't, did y'all see any fire in what Jesus was talking about? I didn't see any fire words there, did you? No, I didn't. No. No. 
But when we get to question three and Jesus, um, Jesus has told them, don't go anywhere. There's a manhunt out for you. Don't go outside, (laughs) stay in Jerusalem until this advocate, this helper comes. And so they stayed there for a while, you know, after 50 days, actually, after he um, was crucified. And finally, they were all there together. And suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and it filled up the whole house. They thought they were in a tornado and they saw it looked to them like tons of fire that that came and separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then they all went out and preached out in the streets of Jerusalem because there was a big festival, big religious festival, and all the people from all over the known world who were there heard the good news in their own language, you know, from these, from these completely blown away (laughs) disciples and people, right? (laughs) And, And so when we hear when we read this tongues of fire imagery, does that sound like the same fire as was talked about in Corinthians with this whole, you know, refining fire burning? What did y'all think about that? I've never thought of those two things as connected before. I haven't either, but it it makes sense. Um, if, If what we're talking about is a refining fire, Right. Or the presence, the holy presence of God. That one right there. Bingo. That's what right? I said. That yeah. it's still part of that Shekinah glory. <laughs> that the Holy Spirit is God. And he came down on each of them. And there's that little bit of Shekinah glory for each disciple. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think yeah, they were refined at that time? Like this. Yeah. Uh, who said that? Who said that? Who was that? Who said that? Renee. Renee, say that again. What you just said. I think at the time when this tongues of flames came to them, they were refined so that they could preach God's word. Does that not make sense with everything we've heard about what happens when we draw close to God? Everything we've read in the scripture so far indicates that God's holiness is refining, right? It always has been, has always been associated with fire. And, um, and Moses would, you know, end up reflected, reflecting this glory when he was in the, in the presence of God. And it just kind of glowed from him for, for, the longest time and then Dora and Kofan just got completely burnt up to nothing you know when and when they drew too close to the holiness their works definitely came out as stubble right and we've seen all these variations I heard somebody say something but but essentially then so if we begin thinking about this refining fire simply being the presence of God. It is the, it is what God does. God is holy. God makes us holy, right? And we've seen in what our Isaiah said in this lesson 
that it's okay if your sins are, you know, scarlet, just turn your heart to me and do what you see God doing. Do justice. Be merciful. Be kind. Be compassionate. And your sins won't matter. They will be as if they were white as snow. God alone makes that possible. God is not to be feared in that sense any more than we would fear the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. The Holy Spirit's already there. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but, but we we get that we have the opportunity to turn and listen. So the, the, in the fourth thing, um, the fourth question, I said the scripture was a quote out of Matthew saying, you know, produce fruit in keeping with this kind of repentance of turning towards the Lord. And don't think that you can just stand on your laurels. Oh, we're Jews. We're the chosen people. Or, you know, we're Christians. We belong to Jesus. Same idea here, right? The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is, again, is that whole wood chaff imagery, okay? I, John the Baptist is speaking here, baptize you with water so you will turn to God to as, as a statement that you are turning your heart to God. But after me comes someone more powerful than I am whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He's talking about Jesus here. We find out later. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the chaff from the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We're not talking about hell here. This is not hellfire like it's been taught. This is Holy Spirit fire. Isn't that well, beautiful? And Gail, now that we're to hear, if we back up to that Isaiah verse where it says, there will be peace and the glory of the Lord will shelter the people, a cloud by day and a glow of flaming fire by night, that makes a whole lot more sense. Doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Doesn't it? And go This is a little... This is a real revelation to me because, you know, in a lot of these passages, I have been thinking of fire as, as a bad thing, as punishment. But, but it's not. It's, it's the refining fire of God's glory. That's all it is. God, you're bringing tears to my eyes. It's like, you know, <laughs> this is exactly it. This is like the Helen Keller mo moment, you know, with water. It's just, it's, it's like when you get this and you connect all this, things start to make a whole lot more sense than they did mm -hmm. before, right? And so remembering, and then the last question was remembering that the word judgment is the Lord setting things right. It's simply the Lord saying, I'm about to be present. I'm knocking at the door. I'm coming. I will be there. <laughs> you know, he says, 
he and he keeps urging all the leaders of the people to do what's right in preparation for him showing up. So all of this, does all of this seem consistent with the prophecies in Isaiah? Do we need to be afraid of the fire or of the Holy Spirit? That's not a simple question. But then that gets back to the earlier question of, of are they really the same thing? Right. And so I... I would think if we put all of this together with the knowledge that God's holiness, his very essence, her very essence, <laughs> you know, is there. fire, right? Is that purification that there cannot be something that's not right while God is present there? Gail, mm -hmm. I have a question. Um, so we're going back and reading through all this and talking about it not being a punishment. This fire is not consuming people. Exactly. It's consuming the works. It's consuming exactly. the drugs. Which means the if it takes out the... the the dross, the bad stuff, if it takes that out and it's refining, making better, what's left, the person is still left, but the person is left um, enhanced. More holy. Improved. Yeah, more holy. Concentrated. Holy cow, my mind is Concentrated just goodness. Right? This is so cool. <laughs> and, and, and what is so cool is Jesus said, I'm giving it to you so that you can access this all the time, anytime. If you are doing works, building things, doing Bible studies for people, you can go out and say, you can say to the Holy Spirit, Lord, if what I am doing is wood or chaff or misleading in any way burn it up now don't let it see the light of another day i can lay my works i can lay my heart before the lord and ask for this and and the Lord is faithful. The Holy Spirit is faithful. All God wants is for us to turn our hearts towards him to or her to be able to do this for us so that the end result is what? We become closer and closer to God. It's a different way of being. And a different way of understanding fire in scripture. We would also we would also have different works. It would produce different works. Talk some more about that. Well, if you set what you're doing in front of God and say, you know, burn away the bad stuff, that would mean that the stuff that's left is the the stuff he approves of. So when we go out to interact with people. We are interacting with them, our fellow humans, 
with God's approved works. With a, with a, with a, with only that part. And another way I might say it, instead of being God approved, I might say that this is yet another way to humble ourselves before the Lord. If we're willing to lay our works down and let them be burned up. This is so contrary to, I'm 61 years old, and this is so contrary to what I have been taught my entire life in church. Because not all churches, I suppose, but the ones I grew up in taught you to be scared to death of failing God to everything was judgment and punishment and they they failed to concentrate on God's character and how good God is and it I'm really excited for people like Ellen and Erica to be here because they're learning this so much younger than I did. So they have so much more life to give knowing. But I, all I can think of right now is what's his name? Jonathan, what's his name? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Oh, yeah. And that's Edwards. the philosophy. Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. Up Jonathan Edwards. Thank you. I, Thank you, Ellen. I can think of was Jonathan Livingston Seagull. That is that. <laughs> but yeah, Jonathan Edwards. Um, you know, that's the God I grew up with. And I never could comprehend it because it seemed contrary to what I knew about God. But I never really got it until today. Mm. Mm-hmm. 61, almost 62 years old. And I just finally got it. It's not that I didn't comprehend what they were saying. It's that they were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. This is like, thank you. My mind is just like exploding today. Well, I think it's interesting too, to like, we hear so much in some of the Christian conservative world of like, repent now, um, make sure you obey so that you don't go to this eternal burning fire of hell. And now I'm like, awesome, because if it's eternal fire, then I am becoming pure. So it is so like, I'm just thinking of, I I just got a new, almost like giggled of people who are, who who use the fear tactics to get us to turn to God so that we don't go to eternal fire of hell. When if we're looking at fire, okay, maybe it isn't this eternal, awful, horrible place that we should all be afraid of and turn towards because we don't want to experience. Now it's almost like, yes, I want this fire. I need this fire. Yes, Yes. I bring the fire. Bring the fire. Bring it on. So it's just so sad. You know, let me contrast. You know, uh, I think a lot of those uh, fire and brimstone preachers are more lake of fire and less bema seat fire. <laughs> yeah, 
so we haven't got to you know that stuff and that's like one verse at the very end but 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 we're talking here about the act about god because all that really happens when these bodies die is we become present to god in a different way right in a better closer way just kind of automatically but all of it the whole thing from before our birth during our lifetime and after our lifetime however long our soul has been created and exists the whole point is that we we be able to be with God and God has always enabled this and how God does it is through purifying us. God can, we've seen it with God purifying us by touching us, purifying us, you know, by uh, allowing these like sacrifices, you know, rituals that by, by the dwelling of the Holy spirit, by, But whatever it is, when you turn your heart to the Lord and humble yourself before the Lord and let go of your works and say, Lord, I want to enter into this holy fire. That is when God shows up in your life. It is an amazing blessing that God has bestowed on us to make that fire accessible to us now. And you can imagine why it's called the spirit of truth. Right? Because anything that's not truth that enters that fire will be revealed for what it actually is. And as we become practiced in walking in and with that fire daily, our discernment antenna (laughs) get a lot better. What do you mean by that? Our discernment antenna, us being able to recognize what's pure from not pure or how just knowing our, we become practiced at recognizing the spirit of God. We become, okay. we okay. become practiced and familiar. It's like making a friend. You become more and more familiar with that friend. You become a lie detector. <laughs> <laughs> it is. But this is a this is huge. This is I, I am just so glad you all have begun to make this connection and have seen have seen this thread for what it is. And I hope that that this week that you have the opportunity to reflect on it um, and to begin to practice the presence of God in this way without fear with no fear whatsoever yeah I just made another connection which is 
going all the way back to our very first Bible study class. We've been talking about the, the, the same thing, different ways through different circumstances, but this entire time, it's all been about God's character and God's presence. Starting from the Garden of Eden, it was about God's character and God's presence. Yes. And how we see him, them, I'm, I'm using plural pronouns for God now, um, how we see them and how they see us. And it's always been about that from the very beginning. Yes. And that will not change. And that's what we will find when Jesus, when we get to Jesus coming, you know, all of this is just going to begin to make a whole lot more sense. So I'm thrilled. I'm really glad that we did this in time for these next few lessons, because there's going to be some intense stuff happening to Israel and Judah during this time of purification. So it was really important that we understand where the Lord's heart is. Um, the Lord will continue to make it clear and through the prophets, but we needed to have it land in our hearts. So this was, this was wonderful. Bless you all. And I'll see you next week. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Blessings to everyone.